I, there is an R.L. Stein somewhere. He, he has a Twitter account. He okay. has some sort well, of Well, has presence. a Twitter account in, in quotation marks. Who's right. running that Twitter account? Really? This is the R.L. Stein conspiracy theory. Didn't <laughs> expect that, did you folks? Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. My name is Cassidy, and with us today, we have a very special guest, Julia Marchesi, who you should be following on Twitter if you're not already. <laughs> well, hello. What an intro. Hello, everybody. Julia is a filmmaker, a blogger, a podcaster, and a horror film enthusiast. And so we're going to get into a bunch of stuff this episode. We're going to be reviewing Fear Street 1994, which did technically come out last summer with the other two Fear Streets that were sort of released in bulk. But I figure we're in the spooky season. I've noticed a lot of people kind of talking about these movies again. It's, it's, it's shifted up into the top 10 of, of the Netflix streaming weekly clicks or however they aggregate that. Um, so we're going to be talking about the first one in that series, Fear Street 1994. And at the end of the podcast, uh, Julia has brought as the streaming homework, a movie from 1980 called Fade to Black. And I'm excited to talk about that movie, especially. Yes, you should be because it's an amazing film. Yes, it is quite a gem. And it, I, I feel like I say this about every like four weeks or so, but it's one of those, like, how have I never, how does this not run across me? Yeah, at this right. point in my life. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know. I feel like if you're a friend of mine within the first like six months, mm-hmm. Fade to Black's almost guaranteed to be shown to you because it's very near and dear to my heart. And it's it's very uh relevant to my interests as far as what we do here on the podcast and what I do with my everyday life. Um, sans the murder. <laughs> I um, <hope> so. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I, I, I wanted to, to talk to you before we get into all of that. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the project that you're working on. Um, I know that most currently, I believe uh, you had crowdfunded a short film based upon the Stephen King short story, I Know What You Need. That is that is very true. Yes, um, it's part of his dollar baby program. So he has certain stories of his that you can buy the rights for, for $1 for one year, and then you can make a movie of it. And he knows that his name opens doors for young filmmakers, which is really nice. Mm -hmm. And part of the contract is you have to send a copy of the film to him to watch because he still wants to see what people do with his work, which is so bitching. Um, So I got my very favorite short story, I Know What You Need, which is in the Night Shift collection. And I got to film it at the University of Maine where the story takes place. So the library in the story is the library we actually filmed at and we got to stay in the dorms and I got to sleep in the dorm room that Stephen King stayed in when he lived there, which is bonkers. Yeah. So that, that was going to be my next question is where are you um, in the process of, of getting this made? So are you, you're in totally in post-production now? Yeah, so we filmed it over uh, a week in the summer. It went fantastic. I was, uh, you know, the cast and the crew were just tremendous. And it's one of those things where I met everybody over Zoomed, right? Right, because we're mm-hmm. in the middle of this. And so coming together with 22 people in 
a dorm living together for a week could go sideways, but it didn't. It went all fantastically. So that went great. And yes, it's in the editing process. And then it's all the rest of post-production. And then in 2022, it'll start doing film festivals and go from there. Um, part of the contract is I can't sell it. So it's not that I can make any money off of it, but it can be used for film festivals and private screenings and for a calling card, basically. And I get to know that I got to be get to kind of be part of the Stephen King universe now because I have my vision of his story out there. Yeah, that's awesome. And I know, you know, having followed you for a while and I, I want to say I, I like a lot of people first kind of ran into you online when you had a viral TikTok dance about Wait. your favorite Stephen King movies. <laughs> yeah, that was part that was during my um, my campaign for the for the for the film. So I, I kind of use TikTok as because uh, I, I think that it's important for the people to connect with the person that's doing the project. And mm -hmm. because I have such a natural passion for Stephen King, it was kind of this fun way to integrate that with, you know, video and dance and catch people's attention and stuff. Um, and I, it, you know, it's weird because I did a bunch of those and I, I, you know, I can't, I can't figure out why something does better than something else, but it's like, that one was like 10,000 views and mm -hmm. everything else I do is like 300. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know what I, I didn't do anything differently. It's exactly the same as these other ones. I don't know yeah. why, but this is how the internet works. Yeah, exactly. That that's the internet. It's a very strange and precarious place. Um, yeah. I, I, uh, you know, I responded to that. I'd been following you since. And then I'd seen that you had um, you were working on this movie. What was the crowdfunding process like? Was it were you able to reach your goals? Did you go above it? What did your um, perks and stuff include? So this is actually my second crowdfunding campaign. My first film out of print, which mm -hmm. is a documentary uh, that came out in 2016, uh, was also crowdfunded and that was on Kickstarter. And so this time was on Indiegogo. So there were actually two campaigns that run uh, that ran. Uh, the first one that I, I ran and the second one, uh, I worked with the George Romero Foundation. They're incredible people who are keeping George Romero's legacy alive. And they have a horror archive in Pittsburgh where they're archiving all of his props and scripts and everything. And they were amazing and stepped up and they ran the second campaign for me. And so they raised some of the money as well. So we didn't make the budget that I had wanted, but we still had enough to make the film. So, you know, because the film is set in 1976, that's the mm. year that the story came out. And also the, the story, if the internet exists, it falls apart. The story doesn't work. So I didn't want to update it anyway, because 76 is my aesthetic. So that was a part of it is like, I also have, it's also a period piece, which adds not much to the budget, but you know, some anywhere, mm. everybody's coming in from different locations. We're shooting on location, like the whole bit. Um, but I think crowdfunding, you know, it's, it's really hard work. And I, I don't think people realize how hard of it, you know, it's, it's, it's a full-time job basically. Mm -hmm. And the, the last day of my campaign, I was online from 6am to midnight the whole day, just because I have, you have to constantly be sending emails and responding and, and messaging and will you retweet and like the whole bit, but really both of my campaigns, Twitter has been 75% of my donations. So, and I just like Twitter best. I think people are, you know, and a lot of people say that they, they think Twitter's quite toxic, but honestly, everybody on my page is so nice, like so supportive and so awesome. And like, that's why I love that one because I feel like I have the best interactions and I always respond to people and I think it's so much fun and mm -hmm. I never get people being an ass to me. So I like yeah. it. I, I mean, I want to congratulate you for, for making Twitter a more positive place in general. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, there's a few people out there who, um, I consider like the, 
the uh, the upper echelons of uh, film Twitter, and it's like you and oh. Matt, Matt Zoller Zeiss are the ones I see um, hashtagging uh, the film Twitter hashtag the most, and that oh I goodness. probably respond to the most. Um, and Thank you. I feel very honored. <laughs> I've, I've also used many of your film Twitter prompts uh, as content on this podcast. So it, oh, thank cool. you uh, in part for um, helping me create something here. <laughs> that's so awesome. Yeah. You know, it, it, the internet is such a weird place, right? Because you have no idea. You just send this thing that goes out in the void and you have no idea mm-hmm. who's who's paying attention, who's reading it, if it makes any difference. And then you're like, oh, cool. I added a little something. Well, thank you. That makes me feel very good. I also wanted to talk about, well, actually, before I move on to out of print, mm-hmm. um, because I also watched that, uh, oh, great. I, I did want to I, I did want to ask you to just give a small premise for your short and the, uh, the Stephen King story um, that it's based on so that when it does become available or when it starts hitting festivals mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, people know what to look forward to. Sure. Well, uh, the story, so it's called I Know What You Need. Uh, It's in the Night Shift collection. Uh, And it's basically about a girl, a college girl who meets a boy in the library who says, I know what you need to her. And what she needs is a double dip of ice cream, of strawberry ice cream. Um, And that really is what she what she wanted. And so it's this thing of her falling in love with this character who clearly some he's actually very eric binford from fade to black to be honest it's very much that where you have this boy like there's clearly something wrong with him but he's kind of adorable and you're like oh but he can't be that bad like that kind of thing Mm -hmm. and the thing with me is is you know it's a it's a fascinating story to me because it's it's basically like if you if you had his powers of sorts and it's like if you have in stephen king's universe when you have powers they're always used for these gigantic things right like the shining Mm -hmm. or firestarter or carrie um and and this is basically a story that's saying what if you had these tremendous powers and you wanted to use them to make one person fall in love with you i'm kind of into that idea it's it's you know and of course it so it's a it's a love story but of course it's a stephen king love story so it's it's tremendously messed up but it's this you know but that, that that was kind of the idea of is like okay it's it's, it's romantic if you look at it one way and it's really fucked up if you look at it this other way and like which way is it because the thing about it is like you know if someone's really into you and you like them that's fantastic but if someone's really into you and you don't like them it becomes really creepy but it's the exact same actions just it's your perception of that person that makes it different um so that's kind of the idea behind it um i'd say it's a it's a underseen story it's a when a lot of people don't know it uh but i i fell in love with it immediately and i was like i want to make this movie and then i did <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible so uh yeah let's start i want to i want to ask you a, a little bit about out of print because i found it online i believe it's free to watch right now on imdb tv which is how i watched it and I wasn't aware that you had worked for years at the New Beverly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And the documentary sort of chronicles that and chronicles um, the history of the New Beverly. I lived in Los Angeles for about four years, a couple of years in in Orange County going to grad school. And then I lived in the city itself um, until late 2019 or so. So I I frequented the, the Beverly as well as many other rep houses in Los Angeles during that time. Did you, do you remember seeing me there? Not exactly. Now there were some people who were um, featured as like the, the Beverly super fans in mm-hmm. the documentary. It was like, I totally saw that guy. Okay. <laughs> um, 
And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I probably went, you know, I don't know, the whole time I was looking there 10 or plus times or so, um, but I'm, I'm terrible at remembering faces and things. But but yeah, and I, uh, I have to say the documentary um, was making me incredibly homesick for Los Angeles Aww. and for going to the Beverly and for going to theaters in general. I've sort of been you know, uh, in a position where I can't do that. Um, what with the, uh, uh global pandemic and all, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, uh, talk a little bit about getting that documentary made and sort of what it means to you. Well, I'm glad to hear that it made you feel like you wanted to go to your local movie theater because that's the whole point of the film is it's mm-hmm. about the importance of seeing film in a theater with an audience, which I know right now is tricky, uh, but, you know, it's opening back up. And, you know, the whole point of, of cinema is, is communal viewing that you're going, your, your viewing of this film will be heightened by other people's responses to it, which you think about, as we say in the film, like a comedy or a horror movie and how much they change with mm-hmm. the audience you're with. So if you're sitting by yourself or you're sitting with a friend or you're seeing this movie with 500 people, it's going to keep, it's going to seem like a totally different movie. So the film is really about that and that special kind of magic that comes from seeing films in the cinema. Uh, and then also, so it's about all of these independent cinemas that are keeping that alive and that, but it's seen through the lens of this one theater, the new Beverly in LA. Although we do talk about the Prince Charles cinema in London as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just something that I worked at the new Beverly and it was the, you know, I worked there at this really incredible time where we were doing this guest programming series that I started where we were having these incredible people coming to talk. And, and so everybody I met, everybody that's in the film, I met through that. Um, and they were all, you know, just getting to interview some of those people are my heroes and getting them to get really hear about their connection with the film and what it means to them. Uh, and, you know, to, to be able to ask any questions I like, you know, about what, you know, how they feel about things. It was just really fantastic. And plus, I got to shoot half on digital, half on film as well. Uh, there's a 35 millimeter print of the film made. There's mm-hmm. one. Uh, it was sitting in my hot ass apartment, which making me really nervous. So I called the Academy and asked that they would take it and put it in their vault. And they said, sure, bring it down. So I have oh, my, my one print that is sitting in the perfect temperature and humidity in the Academy film archives forever. Yay. That's, that's, <laughs> that's awesome. Um, yeah. Uh, so you say you shot it on, I, I remember you did a side to side at one point yes. in, the, in the film to show sort of the, the, the difference in the texture and the, um, the quality of the contrast and stuff between film and digital. How did that, how did that look to you? I, it came across. Yeah, okay. totally. I mean, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a big film nerd anyway, so I, I prefer, you know, the analog look mm-hmm. uh, uh, to film. It's even if it's, you know, there, there's all these different um, boutique DVD and Blu-ray uh, companies that are putting things out, whether it be Arrow or Criterion or Shout you know, out to both of those guys, Scream Factory and, sure. and all the rest of it. Um, and I, I'm always excited to hear when they they go back to the negatives and they you know uh, try and uh, maintain the uh, authenticity of the film look as much as possible, even if they have to go back and like fix a crinkle or a pop or something like that here or there as they go along. Sure, um, but but listen to what you're saying, right? You, they have an original negative to go back to. Exactly. So fast forward where people don't shoot on film anymore. And then where, what is that? That is your original hard drive. Does the hard drive still work? Is it still mm-hmm. compatible with computers these days? These are the questions I have. 
Yes, and that's a that's a major theme of the documentary as well. The second half of the documentary goes into a lot of like film preservation. So I would assume you said it came out in 2016. You were probably working on it a couple of years before that. Yes. Right. So that was big in the the cultural conversation at that time when Scorsese and Nolan and all of these people exactly. were really putting out this, you know, battle cry of of saving film and keeping it alive and making sure negatives are available. And uh yeah, I think that's I think there's so much to get out of that documentary. And I might I might uh be so bold as to say of the three films we're talking about um in this uh in this uh podcast, it was might be my favorite that I watched. Wow, um, thank you. I think it's a, I think it's a wonderful documentary. And I think the other thing that's great about it, besides the film preservation stuff, um, and the 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 sort of the the personality story of the Beverly is you you get to talk a lot about sort of the experience of repertory theater. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people who grow up in small towns where the best thing they're going to get is an AMC at the mall. I think a lot of people don't really understand that notion of going to a theater to see a movie that's maybe five, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years old. And it's, I think it's, you know, one of the best things you can do if you live in a city that has repertory theater is to experience films that you've maybe only watched on VHS once when you were 12. Yeah, because again, it makes it a different film seeing it with an audience, right? Exactly. Like it's just a wholly yeah. different thing. I just saw at the American Cinematheque here, they just did Ball of Fire uh, from 1941 with Gary Cooper and uh, it'll come to me uh, and uh, Barbara Stanwyck. Jesus Christ. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, brain. Uh, <laughs> and it was so the movie's from 1941 and, and, and just the audience was dying. They were laughing so hard. I mean, it's so incredible that this movie that's 70 years old, right? Like 80 years old, it has still the same same effect that it did so long ago. I think that's fantastic. Right. And, you know, being the kind of, I was like a video store nerd. That was, that was oh, my, me too. Be- that was my first job as a video <laughs> store. Exactly. I, I, uh, I worked there for four, you know, I worked at a video store for four and a half years while I was going to college. What was um, it called? K and B video stop. Okay. It's exactly sort of the clerk's experience where it's half the store is, is grocery. The other half oh. is a, is a video store. Um, and yeah, that was kind of like my experience of a form of curation, right? Mm-hmm. So you get to have your little employee pick rack and that kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I, I had been listening to podcasts, you know, largely takes place in LA, LA critics and things like that. So I'd heard about these places like the Beverly and the Arrow and the uh, New Art and all of these kind of things. And I started like programming these little double features at my house, inviting friends and whoever wanted to come over, yes. um, sort of based upon those, uh, those Beverly calendars, the, the oh, new neat. and old kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, it was, it, it was uh, kind of a full circle moment watching this, uh, this documentary and going like, Oh man, this is like, I need, I need to come correct on the podcast is what I'm saying. <laughs> well, you know, this is, it was a, you know, it's a movie about film made for people who love film. Um, yes. And I'm, you know, and I also wanted to make sure that it was fun as well. I feel like a lot of documentaries can be really heavy and mm-hmm. I didn't want to go that road. So that's why you have the, the, the snipes, you know, all the old vintage drive-in trailer snipes, uh, which mm-hmm. I love and all the old film clips, uh, every trailer and every clip we use in that movie is public domain. 
yeah, that's a positive. That's a way to do it, right? Where you make it yeah, really cheap. Um, sure. My brother did the music, uh, which I think is fantastic. And I, you know, a lot of people who watch it say that it's very, it feels very Julia to them, people who know me. And I go, there you go. That's the goal, right? It's like, you want to make, you want to make it feel like you. I was mm-hmm. like, that feels like me, that movie. Right. And there's so many different ways you can do a, a Talking Heads documentary. And a lot of them, you know, kind of feel ephemeral in a way, because in the days of ultimate content, everyone trying to sort of put their thing out, um, I think a, a documentary especially needs to have a personality outside of just the subject matter. And I definitely got that across on there, like, you know, the, both the love of film and the appreciation of film, but also the, the actual feel and the personality of Beverly itself. Oh, thank you very much. I'm, I, I am glad that it, that, that special moment in time at the new Beverly will be, is there forever documented frozen in time, as they say. Absolutely. So, uh, one last thing before we get on to the movie reviews, I mentioned before that I had used your film prompts, your film Twitter prompts as content on the show, mm-hmm. um, both, you know, to listeners who want to send in their answers via social media or whatever, or if I just need something to ask my co-host just to get our brains going before we get into getting to the main discussions. So I found a couple uh, Julia Marchesi banger tweets. <laughs> and, okay. you know, a lot of times you don't put your answers. So I'm going to ask some of these. Okay. Uh, and, you know, you don't have to spend a ton of time on them if you don't want to, but. Uh, no, this here- is good. Turn it around on me. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> so this is one of your later ones. It says, if you could give any living director unlimited money, resources, creative control to make any movie that they wanted for the rest of their lives, who would it be and why? Uh, well, I feel, uh, so I have two podcasts. Um, one is Horror Movie Survival Guide that I've been doing for several years with my best mm-hmm. friend, Terry. The other one is called Jodorowsky, uh, which is all about Alejandro Jodorowsky and his film career, which is incredible. And I would give that man so much money, anything he wanted. I, I know he's 91, but it's okay because he's going to, he's got, he's never going to die. This man, like he will continue to make mm-hmm. movies. And there's that whole theory about how people's careers kind of slump as they get older and their movies mm-hmm. aren't as exciting as they used to be. And if you have seen Jodorowsky's last two movies, I mean, wow, that man has, is like, it's, they're still incredible. Um, but you know, I feel like there's so many, uh, so many directors like Baz Luhrmann, I would love to see Wes Anderson, give him everything, right. George Miller, give him everything. Edgar Wright. I mean, like, like Edgar Wright has money, but if you're like, give him everything, give him all the money, give him like, there's not, nobody says no to anything. And you're like, you know, if you really took the shackles off of money, off of filmmakers, which is sad that it's still that way, but it is, Mm -hmm. where would you go if you saw them with their, their ultimate? And there's actually, if you, I don't know if you've seen Jodorowsky's Dune, which is about, you know, Jodorowsky was going to make Dune in the the early eighties and then it all fell apart. But his vision for that, where you're like, man, though, if he had had the money to do that, that would have been because they, they kind of posit in the documentary, like what if that had come out before Star Wars and like what if it had altered the so it was like that made this like alternate reality where like it became like this because he wanted to do it really psychedelic and really philosophical and like what if you had Star Wars that actually was like really deep and philosophical as well. So it's just a whole Jodorowsky is my answer. That was my long answer for my short answer. <laughs> Jodorowsky, give that man all the money, please. This one, I'm excited to hear your answer, uh, knowing that you worked at the Beverly as long as you did. What's the craziest thing you've witnessed in a movie theater firsthand <laughs> that wasn't the film itself? 
Oh my god! I'm sure you have war stories. Ooh man, there was a okay. So I'll go. I'll go. For, I'll go small to big. Small. We have the gentleman who used to sit in the back row and floss his teeth with like a pick, and you could hear it twanging from <laughs> between his teeth. And I would be like, "Dude, you bet. Please stop." And he would always look at me like I was crazy, and he would always do it. I was like, "Please, just can you not? Can you not do that, please?" <laughs> It's terrible. It's it's first of all hygienically gross. Yeah. Second of all, like what? Just I don't know. Um, okay, but uh, I would say one of my favorite memories is so uh, Ryan Johnson did a series uh, called The Festival of Fakery. This was when Brothers Bloom uh, was about to come out, so it was all mm-hmm. con men movies. Was the whole thing um and before and he worked hard i think he probably worked the hard like as far as prep goes i think he worked the hardest out of everybody who did a series because he brought powerpoints he had notes he had film clips he had short films like he was not messing around and he really brought his a-game to like prove to everybody why he why these movies are important and why they're important to him and pay attention to this cinematography or, or what have you uh and there was one night where he came down and brought joseph gordon levitt's band to come play pre-show oh wow so there his band was playing and Ryan Johnson and Noah Segan got up on stage to start dancing and they pulled me up with them to start dancing. And there's video of it somewhere of us. And Ryan Johnson was doing this goofy fucking dance that was killing me and I couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> and it was a very surreal moment. And so like that's but this is, this is the thing is like I think you can tell from out of print like Ryan Johnson's a goofy dude. He's <laughs> really goofy. And I love that about him is that he just has this kind of sense of humor that he never seems to get frazzled and like everything's kind of silly so i that he's that was a very so i don't know i guess that accounts as crazy right like watching ryan johnson do a crazy fucking dance on stage with joseph gordon levitt singing in the background it's kind of i, crazy. I think it, i just definitely think it counts yeah but that's one of you know that's the tip of the iceberg i could i could go on but i but i won't do we have more <laughs> questions for me yeah a couple more uh what's the first movie you saw in a movie theater and how do you feel about it today uh, I was like, oh, that's a good question. That's my question. <laughs> um, the, my first movie I ever saw in a movie theater was Clash of the Titans. And I oh, know okay. this uh, because my parents, there's a big story around it because, so I was born in 1979. Clash of the Titans came out in 1981. So I was two when it came out. Uh, and my parents took me to see it. And have you seen Clash of the Titans, the original one? Yes, I have. Okay. The, so it's all the, it's all the Ray Harry Harryhausen. House and, right. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, my parents are like, oh, it's a fantasy. We'll take her. It'll be fine. Um, but they didn't. I didn't even get to the Harry House and stuff because in the very beginning of the film, there's a big flood and like a big storm that mm-hmm. destroys the city. And there was a shot of a guy who was standing on the top of a temple and this like big wind comes and like blows him away. And I started freaking out and I started screaming, man, blow away on the steps, man, blow away on the steps. <laughs> and they had to take me out because I got hysterical. And like, that was it. That was all I saw of Clash of the Titans. This was about the first minute. Um, and it did, yeah, it was, did not go well. Uh, but now I watch Class of Titans and I, I watch that. I watch that shot. And I go, ha ha ha. Right. <laughs> Look at that. Freaked <laughs> me out when I was a kid, but it's fine now. Um, and I think it's a great movie. I think it's really fun. And of course, the Harry Housen stuff is, is chef's kiss. Yeah, absolutely. I remember um, when the remake came out, uh, which I have uh, not seen. You're not missing much, but <laughs> I I was especially upset with the lack of Bubo the Owl. What? What was the best? I know. Even if they had to, like, you know, make it the Mountain Dew commercial extreme CGI version of Bubo, I would have accepted that. But why make Clash of the Titans without it being because you're never going to top that stop motion, which is always going to look cooler than CGI. So, like, you've just kind of negated the whole point of making that film, I feel. A little bit. Yeah. Okay. Uh, This is the last one. 
It says, what's the first movie to ever give you nightmares? That would be uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, which was uh, the first Nightmare on Elm Street I saw when I was too small to see it. And I had a boy best friend growing up. And so I always had to be very tough, right? So he was mm-hmm. like, hey, let's watch Nightmare on Elm Street. I'm like, yeah, cool. No problem. Let's watch it. And then it, it, it fucked me up real bad. And I, I had nightmares for like weeks and weeks and weeks. I really, really did not like it. And Freddy Krueger was terrifying to me. Um, so it's weird because there was this long period of time growing up where I didn't like horror movies at all. That I was like a really big scaredy cat. Mm-hmm. And then it was kind of Stephen King that got me back into it because I started reading uh, it and Carrie and Pet Cemetery, and I was like, "Oh, I really love Pet Cemetery." There's a movie of Pet Cemetery. Let's watch that. And I became obsessed with Pet Cemetery, and so that kind of got me back into horror. And then since then, that was like seventh, sixth grade, seventh grade. And then since then, it's been onto the horror track. But there was like a brief span of years where I was like, "No horror, not into it." I was like, mm-hmm. "Okay, I came back, came back around." I actually have a theory that the people who, um, and especially when you're younger, the people who respond the most to horror films like it scares them the most mm-hmm. um are end up becoming the biggest horror fans because it means that you have a, an extremely active imagination i don't know if i agree with that because i feel like so there's like um i can think of like a friend of mine who really really doesn't like horror movies and he's like mm-hmm. i just can't separate the reality from the fantasy in my head it just seems real to me so it just seems terrifying and okay. like, like, and my dad was like that feeling of being scared. He's like, I don't like that feeling. That feeling's terrible. And like, I think about it as a rush of adrenaline. Like you're you're like on a roller coaster, right? right. You're, you're in a place. You're doing something thrilling, but you know you're safe, and nothing's going to happen. So it gives you this kind of freedom to feel this in a very safe way. Uh, but I understand that some people do not find that feeling pleasant at all. And I go, okay, that's fine. I, you know, as as a as a gore hound, I definitely know that not everybody shares my tastes and film and I go that's fine you know and there's a horror movie for everybody you can right. watch some but you know you can watch a little fright night or a little gremlins or something and like make everybody happy you don't have to go full like martyrs in there you know right yeah I mean there's definitely you know you you come to things at different times in your life for sure and I was I was kind of the same way when I was a kid I was very easily frightened um and I remember I had Nightmare on Elm Street dreams um, before I'd even seen the movies, because I would just walk the horror aisles looking at the covers, and um, oh, it was those like VHS covers. Yeah, you can't get away from them. It was too much. Um, and but it was also very drawn to it in this like weird dichotomy. So, but I believe uh, the official first horror movie to give me a nightmare as a kid was the Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. Oh yeah, because my sister was going through a Winona Ryder phase. And I, I, I have not, I have never grown out of my one in a writer phase. Can I say that? Nor never should stopped. you. Nor no. should you. Um, and so she was renting all of her movies and decided I had to watch this movie with her probably because she didn't want to watch by herself. So she made her seven-year-old brother watch it with her. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, the, the stabbings, uh, the, the Mina scene. Yeah. When they, when she comes down and the thing in the big uh, white costume. Oh, she's Lu- Lucy, like, you mean? Lucy, Lucy, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, that was like way too. That was like way too much for me at the time. But again, yeah, I can understand I, that movie's pretty intense. I was also fascinated by it and like wrote my lo- my own little short story version of it in second grade. So, uh, was, see, everybody wins. <laughs> everybody wins, especially uh, Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah, um, well, and Bram Stoker. Yes, 
All right. Well, let's go ahead and start talking about Fear Street 1994. This was released on Netflix over the summer, and it is based on the works of R.L. Stein. Um, he has <laughs> apparently <sorry. laughs> he has uh, stuff outside of the Goosebumps world. Um, actually, I knew that because when I was a kid, I, I read one of his non-Goosebumps stories, the the Beast. See, this is this is I'm sorry, I didn't mean to laugh, but like for oh, no, me, go ahead. For me, I didn't I didn't I didn't need this R.L. Stein bridge, right? I went straight <laughs> from Laura Ingalls Wilder to Stephen King. And like there was nothing in between. There was no Christopher Pike, there was no R.L. Stein, there's no Dean Coots, there's no nothing. And mm-hmm. so like I just went straight hardcore. So for me, like they seem unnecessary. Like, why read something that's kind of scary, but not actually scary? I guess it's if you're a bit of a Frady cat. Like, I guess I, I don't right. know, I'm just too hardcore. I was just like at 11 on the back of the bus being like, yeah, it, woohoo. So what do I know? Right. I mean, the, you know, people had those like uh, horror training wheels is what I call it. Oh, and, very good. And uh, yeah, when I was a kid, you know, you know we have the scholastic, scholastic book um, catalogs and they those would come the in and do the whole thing. Yeah. And you get, um, you know, Amelia Bedelia or Benicula or whatever. Oh, and then- Benicula, shout out to Benicula. <laughs> I haven't thought about that book in a while. That book's rad. When are we getting those movies? Um, <laughs> and then, uh, uh, yeah, R.L. Stein and the Goosebumps thing was big, big, big at the time. And I and like a lot like the movie video covers. Um, I was very drawn in by the cover art. And uh, Oh, yeah. I will shout out to all of those books cover art because they were very, very intriguing. Uh, but I just yeah. never, never read any. But when I got old, and it would make sense. You're You're the age of my sister, actually, the one who forced me to watch um dracula mm-hmm. um so it makes sense that so we were going through our we're not a writer phase concurrently me probably, and your sister yeah probably yes in separate um, worlds but yeah actually when i got older and like started thinking about the goosebump series and stuff like that i was i was like oh you know what there probably is no rl stein it's probably just a ghost writer name and there's like 20 people who write all those books or whoever and it's then like, I come uh, to find it's, out, like, it's like sweet valley high that's the same Right. They have like a Bible or whatever that they follow. But I, there is an R.L. Stein somewhere. He, he has a Twitter account. He okay. has some sort well, of has presence. a Twitter account in, in quotation marks. Right. Who's running that Twitter account? Really? This is the R.L. Stein conspiracy theory. Didn't expect <laughs> that, did you folks? Fair enough. But yeah, so I guess uh, Fear Street 90, 1994 is based on something that he did. And it uh, tells a story of a town or a, a couple towns and neighboring towns, uh, Sunnyvale and um, what's Shady the other? Side. Shady Side. Yes, I was going to say Shadow Side. Um, but that's almost as on the nose. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, the towns kind of have like, you know, both school sports rivalries, but also there's sort of this underlying uh, social tension. Uh, Shady Side tends to be demographically more people of color. Uh, and there's also kind of an economic difference between the two as well. And they do uh, mention that out loud in the, in the movie. Um, but you have the, you have this, these main characters, this girl named uh, Samantha and this other girl named Dina who live on these opposite sides of the tracks. And um, at the beginning of the film, we have a cold open of, of this girl uh, who gets murdered in a shopping mall. And, this kind of opens up this whole thing of kind of a scream-esque mm-hmm. slasher whodunit uh, that runs through about the first half of the film. 
Um, and then it opens up to more and more sort of conspiracies and and dark history about these towns and other murders that have happened in the past, which um, I, I suppose these other sequels or uh, parts of the film series uh, cover. But there's a lot of different characters in here. And it, you know, I brought up the R.L. Stein thing mostly because I feel like for me personally, I felt this movie was kind of tonally inconsistent and awkward. Hmm. Um, and I had a hard time trying to place like who it's for because it's R rated there. The kills are there. The blood yeah. is splattered. Um, people are saying the fuck word. Uh, there's some kind of awkward, like preteen sex scenes. I didn't necessarily need in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, but then the, the overall pre, they aren't preteens, they're teen teens. Let's be fair. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess Josh is preteen. Or maybe just, I'm used to like the nineties teen movies where they're all 30 year olds. Oh, right. And then these actually seem, these actually look like real, real teenagers. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, there's all that stuff which like trying to earn the r rating but to me the, the the actual like tone of the film felt more like are you scared of the dark or like goosebumps or like um even like something like riverdale on on television but i don't know what was your what was your overall vibe so uh, what i feel and tell me how you feel about this is i feel what they're trying to do is turn this big into a big series by trying to lure in the Stranger Things audience, sure. because right, this is both yeah. Netflix. You have Maya Hawk as your Drew Barrymore in the opening of the of the movie, right? Which is which is just pretty much shot for shot at the beginning of Scream. And you're like, okay, yes. we the kill is like almost exactly the same. We get it. We get what you're doing. I guess the thing that bothered me the most about it was that it was hitting me over the head with the 90s so hard. Yes. It was like so many music cues, so many things that are going to show us what time period we're in. And like, I don't need you to shove it in my face that hard. Like, I, mm. I, I understand that you're, you're I mean, that the, the 90s is a period now, right? It is a period piece. I get right. it. Um, but I don't, I, I don't, the, the, there was a lot going on. And, and I guess... I the first I mean the first thing and this isn't surprising that my brain would go there is the first thing when they start talking about uh, shady side and how you know this town is cursed and everything I'm like oh it's just it's just dairy it's just dairy from Stephen King right you have this a little bit cursed yeah. town where every this cycle or every you know however many years something is going to come and bad and happen and but everybody just doesn't really talk about it and just get on with it and the whole bit um, so I I felt like there's so there were there were so many homages to so many other things that it felt that this kind of mashup of like let's put as much 90s as we can and let's put as much horror stuff that people already know together um and, and it, honestly in the movie itself is a mashup right because you have mm -hmm. a bunch of characters coming together both bad and good to kind of fight together um and that's cool i like that like you're gonna go big and i appreciate that um the characters were you know fun and sassy i guess uh but i didn't it's one of those kind of things because once Scream opened the door for everything to be meta, mm -hmm. like when does it stop? Like, where does that cycle end? Because I feel like that cycle has been going on for so long that horror movies now have to be so, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod. Like we get we're in a horror movie. We're going to reference Day of the Dead and Dawn of the Dead and, and that kind of thing. Like where, I don't know how it swings back to that kind of innocent sincerity that you, that again, which it will, of course. But right. this, you know, it gets kind of, to me, a little tedious where it's just kind of, in, it feels very like shoehorned in, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I felt like, you know, 
by the middle of the movie when they start to explain a little bit more about the history of this town and the history of this curse. And we're introduced to more killers um, and they're all kind of in different costume and they're all sort of referencing kind of different aspects of horror, slasher horror um, or supernatural horror. Um, I felt that actually kind of did a disservice uh, to the potential scares and horror of the movie because it sort of diffuses the iconography of the villain itself because now you're being chased by all of these different things at different times. I think that, it, it kind I of becomes like neat. a Halloween costumey kind of thing. Sure, but I think about like if 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 we had a, a battle in it where it's Pennywise in all of his forms. Mm-hmm. I think every form he's ever had, and those are all going to battle you. I think that's kind of a cool idea. Something where you, because I feel like the the villain itself, her, herself, would have been, probably would have been a little lackluster. Like, how are you going to live up to something like that? So I think sure. kind of making it more than that and 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 having all of these, because you're going to, of course, have to split the kids up and like, how do you wrangle everybody and that kind of thing. So, but it wasn't everything like where I was like, oh, it's a big mystery that needs to be solved, but they did kind of do a lot of twists and turns and you kept you guessing. So mm-hmm. I can say that I didn't really ever know where it was going exactly. And of course they're, you know, setting up for multiple sequels with more Stranger Things actresses to lure them in. So <laughs> I would imagine it's the kind of preteen crowd, preteen girls would be my guess. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose so. And in, in the days of, of Netflix content, the the way that people think about ratings is sort of different now. So now R doesn't mean the same thing as it used to, or, or I guess, I mean, I don't know. I had different times of, of horror history. There have been uh, R rated movies geared toward younger teenagers. Sure. Maybe we just haven't seen that in a while. And when the PG 13 horror um, reigned supreme for a while there. But you think about you think about Stranger Things, and they swear all over the place in Stranger Things, and there's sure. there's it's bloody. Like I, the last season, my dad was like, "Ooh, might be getting too bloody for me this show, like too gory." And so <laughs> you know they're going hard. So I think that these whoever you know is switching over from one to the other, if my theory is correct, probably wouldn't have too big of a problem with it. Would be my guess. Yeah, that that's definitely a possibility. I also wanted to talk a little bit about what you brought up the the sort of the the '90s iconography, um, specifically the soundtrack. Specifically, you know, uh, the way that they integrate the internet and early internet and, you know, see-through phones and all of that kind of stuff. I was, I was struggling really hard for the first third of the movie because I'm, you know, on top of being a movie nerd, I'm kind of a music geek as well. And so when things are like anachronistic by a year or two, I uh, kind of throws me out. And there was definitely like some needle drops that had not come out until 95 or 97 in some cases. Uh, the kid who's on the internet all the time, um, Benjamin Flores Jr., uh, the character's name is Josh. And I actually like that character, but the the setup of AOL that he's using, even the font that AOL is set up with in those specific sh- shots um, certainly did not exist yet. Uh, so and maybe it sounds nitpicky, but as somebody who remembers 1994, yeah, I, I was I was kind of thrown out a little bit. I also thought like costuming wise, like hair and makeup and stuff like that. I think they actually could have like went further with mm-hmm. uh, like placing it in a period. I felt like a lot of these kids looked like they could be hanging around today. Yeah, uh, you're right. I, I mean, I, I didn't see nearly enough like 
uh, Leonardo DiCaprio slash Devin Sawa middle part haircuts. <laughs> oh, oh, I call I call that the Dream Boy haircut is what I call that. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Uh, yeah, I guess it, a lot of it, you know, and, and the music was great, but I just felt like it was a lot. I was like, there's a, right. they're going through music real fast. And like, they're real, like, just so you know, 1994, I'm like, yeah, I got it from the title. I got it. <laughs> We're good. You know, and I, I'm intrigued by the other ones. And I'm sure the 70s one would be cool. And I love, mm-hmm. you know, 70s camp counselor kind of movies. So I'm sure it's fun. Um, but I think you're right. You know, right. What you said, like, who is it made for? And it's like, it's kind of in, in this middle place. But that's what these books are, right? These mm-hmm. books are in this middle place where they're not really horror, but they're not really teen stuff. So it's kind of gapping that bridge. So I think that that's exactly what this movie is trying to do is be where the book, what the books were. Right. Yeah. I, I, and, and then you bring up a good point of, you know, sort of tapping into that, that uh, Stranger Things or even, you know, something like this, the new Sabrina reboot or, or whatever. Um and, and I see a place for that. And I, I can even appreciate, you know, pop horror. I think there's a place for it. And I think that, you know, those are a lot of the movies that kind of brought me in early on. Certainly the first Scream movie was very formative for me, um, as well as, you know, stuff like Lost Boys or, you know, anything sure. that kind of had some adventure quality or comedy in it that sort of softens the blow a little bit. But I feel like unlike Scream, and unlike Lost Boys, you don't have sort of an authorial voice like a like a Wes Craven or a, uh, a Joel Schumacher. Even I don't see much of a vision here, so much as just kind of a a, a Pinterest board of <laughs> ideas that'll set a mood. That's mm-hmm. it. Okay, I see that, and it's not that I disliked it because it was fine. Like it, there was mm-hmm. nothing wrong with it, and I feel like you know they. The actors were trying very hard. I feel like they were, you know, really trying with the script to do something new and fun, mm-hmm. uh, but it didn't really feel new and fun. And I can't really tell why, uh, but there wasn't, I didn't feel engaged like I did in Scream. And like, you know, and I feel like it's cliche to say like Scream is kind of, there's been so many knockoffs of Scream over the, over the years and it's influenced right. so much that it's gotten to this point where it's overwhelming a little bit. And like with the new, with the new Scream, I'm like, but, but, but why guys, right. but why? <laughs> It becomes a copy of a copy of a copy. Exactly. Um, and like, that's, you know, that's what I feel like this was a little bit is, is not only copying Scream, but then copying like so other, so many other horror movies that it just becomes this, this mashup of, of different things, which, you know, honestly, Stranger Things is, and is kind of one of the things I mm-hmm. like about Stranger Things is that you can tell what the influences are, but sure. they're not exactly that. So there's, you know, they're altered enough to make it something new. And I would rather you do that than make a remake of something, you know, it's like, okay, we'll take Firestarter and you take ET and you mush Mm -hmm. them together. And like, what do you get? You get this, you know, and it's this. So I think that that's really fun. And and I feel like the, the Duffer brothers have such a, like a directorial voice, right? Like it's Mm -hmm. very specific vision and it has like a really beautiful cinematography and they, they really are having fun with it. And I feel like that fun that I feel there, I didn't feel in this movie. Yeah, I felt I, I kind of felt a little iced out. It felt like it was, you know, it was it was aiming for style, but it kind of just lands on slickness. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't doubt that there's an audience for this. It is it has been doing well since they were released in the summer. And again, now that it's uh, we're in the Halloween season, people are watching them again. I even have people where I work who's saying like, oh, this is my jam. It's one of the reasons why I decided to to talk about it. And I can see like for, a, you know, maybe a less seasoned horror audience or somebody who just 
who likes to dip in just once a year or something like that with, with something a little lighter that this could be it for them. Uh, for me, I, I felt like it was, yes, uh, for me, it was too tonally inconsistent and I guess not specific enough in a lot of different ways. Like even the characterizations, you know, and they, they add in like, you know, they, there's, you know, some LBGT um, which representation I really love. here. Which, I think that that's probably my favorite thing about this movie. I yeah, like, just, they, they try and good. have a complexity with these characters and try and, and make them more than just, um, you know, ghost fodder or whatever. <laughs> and, and I think that, you know, the, like I said, the, uh, the, co- the computer nerd kid and, and the girl he has a crush on and all, you know, who ends up being our main crew. I got there with them eventually, but it took a while. Like it got to the point where when they're in that room and they, they realize like, oh, you know, if we let one of these people go, maybe this will all stop. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting moral dilemma. If the movie had decided to sort of hyper-focus on this moment and make it kind of a bottle episode movie, I think that would have been a better direction for this entire idea. But I don't know. What do you think about that? I think that every movie you watch, there's there's always the version in your head, right? Where you go, Mm -hmm. why didn't they do this? If they had just done this, it would have been a totally better movie, but it's not the movie they made. So you just have to kind of review the movie they make and go, okay, they didn't do that. And they went the way they went and maybe it wasn't the way you would have gone, but that's what it is. And perhaps I I was just feeling that way because it did take about that long for me to like finally empathize with these characters and get to the place with them um, that uh, that I felt like the movie was driving at. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, I, I'm not in love with it, but I also don't begrudge people who are younger or people who are, you know, maybe less, uh, I, I think, like I they're think the le- a little less spicy. I think the lesson learned here is that if you like the Fear Street books, mm-hmm. you'll probably like the Fear Street movie. I think it is game, uh, geared to the same audience. Mm-hmm. So if that's your jam, then that would be your jam. There you are. For sure. All right. Let's let's talk about Fade to Black. And I want you to kind of give us the premise here. Uh, This is the movie that you brought to the show. Mm -hmm. Um, When did you first see this? And uh, and then, yeah, if you could describe a little bit of what what it's about. You bet. So I first saw this uh, when I was my senior year of college. I lived with my best friend, Marion, and we had a place nearby called Gold Star Video. And we decided that it was our goal for our senior year to watch every horror movie in the horror section of that store. So it was like 217 movies, something like that. Mm-hmm. And so we just went through and watched them. And we didn't do them alphabetical or anything. We kind of picked them on the coolness of the art on the cover box. And uh, by the end of the year, we were slogging through some some real stinkers. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was one that came out that we were like, well, hey, this movie's great. Why have I not heard of this movie before? Um, and so it was something that we really loved. And so like part of so that my my move my i'm sorry my podcast horror movie survival guide is based on this notebook that she and i kept that year logging all of the movies that we watched and so she and i became big horror fans and then this we started this podcast and now i'm doing it with my friend terry so that kind of year of watching horror movies led to where i am now which is kind of bananas so this movie uh, I saw uh, and I showed it at the New Beverly uh, because I loved it. And I met Dennis Christopher, who is incredible. I'm friends with Dennis Christopher. I'm also friends with Vernon Zimmerman, who wrote and directed this movie as well. So the movie is basically about a super film nerd, but we're talking 1980 film nerd, which means mm-hmm. he has a projector in his room. He doesn't have a VCR. He doesn't have, you know, it's not there yet. 
So he has these film cans and he's just shut up in his room watching films for his whole life uh, and avenge and is kind of snubbed by everyone he meets in his life. So his line between fantasy and reality basically snaps and he starts dressing like film characters to kill people. So just that premise alone, I think is so good. What a mm-hmm. good premise. And the thing I loved showing it at the New Beverly because I felt like everybody at the New Beverly is that guy. Like, I know that guy, you know, <laughs> I know that guy. That's I've seen that guy. Like it's, it's basically this, you know, there's so many people at the New Beverly that's like, if you just give one little push and they're just right. going to flip, you know, they're just going to tip over and it's not that far. So I think, you know, when you get into this real hardcore film nerd thing, like it can get kind of, I don't know what the word is, <laughs> but, uh, but <laughs> I felt like I was a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it is. Right. Cause you're living on the screen with this other people and you're not paying attention to your real life. So Dennis Christopher just, uh, had starred in breaking away, which was award-winning performance. He got, you know, for that he did, it was incredible. If you haven't seen breaking away, I highly recommend it. Uh, and so this was his next movie is he chose fade to black to be his follow-up to like his big debut film. And right. I think that he, kills this performance like it, it so hinges on his performance is this whole movie and and making this killer into somebody really sympathetic i think is a really hard thing to do i think he really does a really good job so uh secret disclosure i really um cr- i have a big crush on eric binford so i kind of have a <laughs> thing for like the cute boy serial killers so someone okay. like Nor- like norman bates Sure. Is it is yeah. adorable, right? Until the turn, like let's be fair. But but you know, beforehand, adorable. And I feel like the same way with Eric Benford, like, oh, he's just adorable. Like, I want to snuggle up in his little bed and watch movies with him in his little room, and I'd be so happy. Sure. I don't know if you caught in his room, there is a new Beverly poster up. Oh, I I didn't see that. No. But yeah, th- throughout the throughout the movie, uh, it was one of those things in my head. I was like, okay, this is 1980. So this is like the depiction of the unpopular in 1980, but like nowadays he would be like the ultimate like cool hipster guy because yeah he'd be like running vinegar syndrome right yeah he's like in this mod fashion with his with his fedora and the skinny tie and he's like you know every all of his suits are like perfect fit and i'm like he's actually got some serious drip going on in this movie <laughs> i love his overalls <laughs> outfit that's my favorite outfit <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then of course his you know his his ability in in uh movie makeup alone Oh, that um, Dracula makeup is so great. Right. That, and of like, course, that amazing shot of him in half face and mm-hmm. uh, is super iconic. And I, I feel like I've seen that, like either in a clip show or something like that. Like I was like, oh, I definitely that has been shown to me in some in some form or fashion before. And, I, and that's the cover of art as well. That's really right. fantastic. Is this kind of half half face that he's doing. Yeah. Um, but, but, but Dennis says he, he, it's Dracula, but high fashion. And I'm like, yes, it is. Right. Yeah. Love it. Um, and there's there's an aspect of the movie where it's it's extremely Hollywood um, because, you know, not only is he obsessed with film, but he also works at an archiving or um, production plant for um, it's like a, a print house where they send it, send it, yeah. keep prints. Yeah. So that's that's his regular day job um, working with a very young and handsome Mickey Rourke. Mm-hmm. Um and he, he he develops this kind of uh, Travis Bickle to uh, school shepherd like <laughs> crush on this girl who looks exactly like Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, Linda Carriage, which might be my favorite Marilyn Monroe on screen. She's uncanny. 
I, I, especially towards the end when she's in the actual Marilyn costume and makeup, I was like, but I mean, was she used as, as a Marilyn model for like all of the eighties? I would have to imagine. So how could she not be? She's, right. she's so, and she's so good in this. And I, you know, I think mm-hmm. it's that thing where she's a little lost too, because, you mm-hmm. know, she's just moved here from Australia. She just worked at a skate shop in Venice and like, she was waiting for her big break and like everybody else in Hollywood. Right. So she, right. I think you can understand why she would be interested in someone who's very interested in her which he mm-hmm. clearly is from the beginning. And they, you know, they do all these kind of really great, you know, stuff where they throw in all these Hollywood landmarks, right? So you have right. um, the bookstore that he goes in is Larry Edmonds bookstore, which is a very famous bookstore on Hollywood Boulevard. And you have him on the Walk of Fame with the Chinese theater and the whole, the whole mm-hmm. bit. So they're really pushing that angle. And I think the, the film's use of classic film clips intercut in this film is fascinating. And it's basically Eric's inner, inner monologue, inner monologue. what, what mm-hmm. he sees is it's always referencing these other movies in his head there were so many places but you know both in the editing like you just mentioned the way that those the archival clips are used um uh to you know just the concept of the movie uh the depiction of the character that feels so modern to me like there's mm-hmm. a lo- there's a lot of this stuff that you could see kind of later on in uh, it's funny in the last podcast we did me and my co-host talked about non-horror films that gave us the creeps okay and he mentioned the cable guy okay i've actually never seen that one uh, there that movie had to have been referencing this movie i mean surplant um cinephilia with an obsession with with uh uh sitcoms and and old television and it's almost the same character he even uh changes his name to to tv uh, characters and you never actually know his real name um, oh, interesting. in the film. Uh, just like uh, this character in this film uh, uh, goes by the, uh, the alias from White Heat, the um, Cagney character. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you know, doing voices and the whole thing and, and, and kind of lives in this, this kind of constant state of uh, fantasy but yeah, it, it's it's really interesting to see how this movie, even just sort of the meta discussion of of film and film culture, and you know, being sort of rejected by the industry. Of course, like movies like Sunset Boulevard and things like right. that existed before this. But I think the way it's kind of framed in this sort of like lonely, uh, toxic male kind of thing. <laughs> is uh is like incredibly prescient and 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 modern like a lot of a lot of the a lot of the takes that this movie explores thematically uh are incredibly relevant still i mean even if you think about like the you know the uh restore the Snyderverse people online or like the the super crazy star wars haters who you know constantly hate tweet at uh, different celebrities or different directors for ruining <laughs> their favorite thing or whatever. Um, this movie is kind of like exploring that or, I mean, you know, unintentionally um, predicting that to a certain, to a certain extent. It's like back then there was no internet. There were no internet forums where this guy would meet all the other guys just like him to, to be able to, uh, you know, create these kind of um, uh, self-perpetuating uh, fan groups. And, and, you know, I think that there, there's something where, 
you know, when you, I think he would, you know, he goes, he talks about, he goes to the cinema. I think he said he goes three times a day for a year. Mm -hmm. So that's something that's intense. Right. And that's something where I know from personal experience, I love going to the movies by myself because you're not alone, right? Mm -hmm. You're, you're experiencing something with all these other people together, even if you are just sitting alone. So I think with someone incredibly lonely, like he is, it's a way to contact and communicate with humans, even if he's actually not talking to anybody. And I think it's this kind of loneliness that will just drive you deeper into these, these, you know, horrible delusions that are just going to get worse and worse. Can we talk about, however, uh, in my opinion, the one sour note in this film, which is uh, Tim Thomerson as the, uh, the hip cop psychiatrist who's going to come in and <laughs> fix these kids and doesn't do a goddamn thing. That whole movie just no. makes everything worse. And I hate that character so much uh i'm sorry but i feel like it's it it's so not interesting to me right like, i feel like if you took that plot out yeah and just made it about eric and his thing i would like it more than i already do which is a lot i'm not even entirely sure the movie's interested in that subplot i know right <laughs> by the time halfway through the movie when they keep going back to them, I'm like oh yeah this subplot exists right. i enjoyed that character because He's so ridicul- ridiculous. There's there's kind of a, a camp element to him. He kind of reminds me a little bit of, um, oh, what's his name from, uh, who plays a doctor in Halloween 3? I only got Tom Atkins. Yes, you are correct. Oh, okay. Um, he kind of feels like a Tom Atkins-like He's, he's like a poor character. man's Tom Atkins, right? <laughs> right, yeah. There's a scene where he's like, you know, having sex with this cop that, he's, that he just met, and they're you know, post-coital, I guess, he pulls the blanket out and he has a box of Ritz crackers mm-hmm. and a and a and a bottle of wine. And hey man, I mean that's what you Ritz crackers. That's what you yeah. do, right? That's totally normal. I, I mean there's there is that phrase I wouldn't can kick you, him out of bed for eating crackers. He that's literal. I know. Can you think of the crumbs? The crumbs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, we get we get him, you know, snorting coke doing the harmonica and just being a right. fucking weirdo. And I just I don't, you know, I don't understand why I'm supposed to like him, right? Because I feel right. like Eric Binford's this really er- interesting character because he's clearly the villain, mm-hmm. but he's also the hero. So you are kind of on his side and not on his side. You see both sides of his story. So I feel like having this other guy, I don't want that guy as the hero. Is he supposed to be the hero? Because he's awful. Like, I would like Eric so much more than I like that guy. It's an interesting place to have him in the story because you you know at some point um Benford is 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 going to run into the law. He's getting sloppier and sloppier. He's you know he's letting his rage take over as far as who he targets and eventually he's going to get caught. So you know that this is eventually going to lead to to some sort of showdown with the police probably. Mm-hmm. Um but then in the middle of that you have this guy whose whole thing is about like reform instead of incarceration and again these weirdly modern um um uh themes but they don't really do anything with this character and they, they yeah. know he's mostly played for laughs i would assume that kind of why he's there is mostly just for that's the, com- that's the comic relief in this movie you think it's him Goodness. i mean you, you get it enough from everyone else because there's that the tone between comedy and and horror is 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 uh right on a razor's edge the entire movie anyway but I think with uh, there's there was a scene that happens where he was questioned by this character and it almost feels like it it got cut from the movie or something. Yeah, because 
why didn't we see that? Like they just skim right. over that. Oh, we talked to him, but we didn't find yeah, anything. He 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 walks out. He gets on his moped or whatever. And then um, there's that uh, police chief guy who's like, oh, you know, he's no good. And he's like, no, it's not him. He's a good kid. He just needs blah blah blah. And it's like that's a scene we kind of needed. Yeah, because you have these two converging subplots. And uh, they never really come together except for in a scene that doesn't happen, that happens off screen. So I want to ask, because obviously I mentioned I have the hots for Eric Binford. I assume you do not. So what do you think of as a character? Because I'm kind of blinded by beauty. I think he's fascinating. I I mean, like I said, I think he's, um, first of all, like, you know, going into the movie and kind of seeing what it's about and him in his room, you know, the, the projector on his mom's yelling or his rather his aunt is yelling at him. Um, and then he's like, ta- you know, trying to like one up everybody with his film trivia. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> hashtag know that <laughs> hashtag scene. I got, I, I get it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but as the movie kind of progresses, I was getting more and more uh, sort of wrapped up in the dimensionality of his character because it, it first kind of comes off a little broad mm-hmm. um, and maybe, maybe caricature-ish-ish. Okay. Uh, but then, you know, I think once he meets Marilyn in the movie and then, you know, once we see his sort of transformation and he has these scenes where he's, you know, talking to himself and we see especially how the, the archival footage is kind of sur- uh, surplants his fantasy and the, like the, the quick cuts and inserts that they do throughout um, the, the character really blossoms into something more and more complex and more interesting as it goes. And, and um, yeah, I mean, I was certainly kind of looking at my phone at other stuff this, this actor's been in because I, you know, now he's definitely on my radar and I've seen things he was in. Well, you must've seen it, right? He's Eddie Kasprak yes. in the it, 1990. Yeah. Young or the old, the adult Eddie Kasprak. And mm-hmm. he was, a uh, had a uh, bit part in um, Django Unchained. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Cause, cause he met him through the new Beverly. Cause he came to do the fade to black uh, screening when we did it there. So that's how they met. Random fun fact. Uh, yeah, Dennis Christopher is amazing. I actually got to go with him. It was mm-hmm. really cool too. So he was going to a convention. This was in 2019. Going to a convention, asked me to come with him to help with the autograph signing. So, sure. you know, I would do with, deal with the customer while he was, you know, whatever. So the, I'd, I'd never been on that side of the table. I'd only been on the autograph where you're getting an autograph and I'd never mm-hmm. been on the other side, which is fascinating because you're sitting there for eight hours and people are coming up and telling Dennis Christopher this is this movie. This movie meant this to me. Right. And it's this story about a movie he's in that he has no idea what that story is and how that person affected him. So there was a bunch of people who came up and like fade to black is my favorite movie. And t- this, you know, started me getting a film degree or started me filmmaking or started, you know, all of these things that, you know, you don't think about how that has this big ripple effect. And so, you know, so for, for me, I was, we were just listening. This is incredible to just mm-hmm. hear these stories that are so nice and people really just having this connection. And specifically with this film, I think is, you know, that and breaking, away are kind of like the two ones that we heard the most about sure. and i think you know this is we talked about out of print being a movie you know made by a film lover for film lovers i feel this is the same thing you can clearly see vernon zimmerman who's the writer director is a film geek and gets it right like mm-hmm. you you couldn't write that character if you didn't understand that character and i feel like he does yes yes absolutely and I, and you know the combination of of this screenplay which is um, so multi-layered and so referential and so postmodern, uh, with the depiction of the character in a way that really, uh, where the actor is really, really committed to 
all of the different aspects, whether it be the comedic stuff or his humanity or even, you know, um, the more psychotic stuff. I think he actually, he, he, he manages to hit all of those beats where you believe it's the same person. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's a movie that's totally tricky and totally uh, getting away with it the entire time. Um, so, I mean, I was, I was pretty bowled over. I'm so like, glad to hear that. One, again, I was just like, why, where's this movie been my entire life? One of those kind of things. And also uh, just like, how, how is this not a movie that people talk about more given all the things I mentioned? Um, I, I, when I was in grad school um, for film studies, I, uh, I did my, my thesis on, on um, Peeping Tom. Oh, nice. And that movie's amazing. I thought a lot about that movie as well while I was oh, watching yeah. this. Okay. I um, see that. And, and anytime you have, you know, an, an obsessive weirdo with a, with a eight millimeter, you know, running in his room, I'm going to think of peeping Tom. Um, yeah. And I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to fall in that love with that character. Unfortunately, that's my, that's my lot in life. If I'm ever going to get killed in a horror movie way, it's going to be the cute boy killer. A hundred percent. How do you feel about the, uh, uh, what's his name? The, the tooth fairy from Manhunter. Oh, well. Is that, yeah. that a look kind of crossing the line? I don't know. I'd have to rewatch it. I've only seen it once, but I know I, I would also say Martin. Have you seen Martin? Uh, George Romero's Martin? No, I have not. I would highly recommend Martin. That movie's incredible. And that's got kind of a kind of a similar Eric Binford kind of vibe or Ar- Arnie from Christine, like those sure. kind of. Those yeah, kind of I guys. thought about him a lot as well, especially the transformation mm-hmm. um, of his character as he becomes kind of more and more confident in uh, the, you know, this dark secret that he holds, he, be, you know, he even starts to hold himself differently and, and uh, present himself differently to people because mm-hmm. now he's in a place of power. Um, and uh, again, all, you know, down from the physical to the costuming to everything, it's, it's just such a perfectly drawn character. And I have been championing this movie since I saw it in college. So I feel like the more love I can spread, I can, I can safely say I've shown this to movie to people dozens and dozens of times. So I've done my bit, if not, yes. you know, also talking about it on multiple podcasts and hosting screening at the new Beverly and the whole bit. So I, I feel like this movie doesn't get the love it deserves, but here we are giving it all the love it deserves right now. Yes, absolutely. And I'm glad that I, this of the movies that you had me choose from, that this is the one I picked because um, I don't know if I would have come to it on my own otherwise, but uh, yeah, this is this is a great movie. If nobody's ever seen it, uh, it's streaming now on Shutter. Um, I believe it is also uh, viewable on Amazon. My film Out of Print also also viewable on Amazon. Just FYI, that's on there too. Yes, and I watched it on IMDb TV. Yeah, it's on a bunch of it's on a bunch of VOD stuff. So just mm-hmm. search Out of Print 2016. It should come up because there's a short film that came out before it it's not the one that's narrated by Meryl Streep it's not that one (laughs) (laughs) yeah you'll know you'll know and you see it um because you'll see Kevin Smith's face at some point in the trailer Mm -hmm. uh but and I highly recommend that people see that in fact that movie along with this movie not a bad double feature oh yeah you get the kind of uh, the, the fun side of, of filmmaking, a film going, and then you have the psychotic side of film going. And sometimes they overlap because <laughs> right. I've been to the New Beverly and I can tell you sometimes <laughs> they overlap. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, I have a bunch of stuff I have to say here at the end of the podcast. But before I get into that, 
uh, go ahead and plug it, whatever it is you're doing. I know you talked a little bit about your your movie podcast, uh, Joe Dawowski mm-hmm. and the Horror Movie Survival Guide. Yes. Um, where can people find those podcasts? And, you know, where do you have them start? So uh, Joe Dawowski, you can find on Cinema Smorgasbord and Horror Movie Survival Guide. You can find on pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts, um, Spotify, iTunes, Pandora, the whole bit. Uh, and that one's really fun. Uh, the only thing I would say about our uh, Horror Movie Survival Guide is uh, watch the movie before you listen because we are spoiler heavy. So we do talk about the entire film. And it's really just a deep dive into a different film each week with the lens of how do you survive this movie and become the final girl. So we give Horror Movie Survival Guide tips to let you know how to survive if if, if you find yourself in a horror movie. Yes. Uh, do you have any social media Oh, yes. You would like Sorry. To um, I also, you can find me at Julia C. Marchesi. Uh, it's J-U-L-I-A-C-M-A-R-C-H-E-S-E. I am there on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, on TikTok. You can hang out and talk to me. And I love talking movies, if you hadn't noticed. So whatever you want to talk to me about, I will be happy to answer. Great. And if anybody has anything to say about any of the topics that came up in this podcast or previous, you can email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at mcguffinpod. You can also find us on Facebook inexplicably. For some reason, we're still there at facebook.com slash mcguffinpod. Um, you can also follow me individually on Twitter and Instagram at vccassidy. And what else? Uh, Be sure to leave us a five-star rating and a one-sentence review at whatever your favorite podcatcher is, uh, specifically iTunes and Spotify. And uh, Keith, you know, he's in New York right now doing uh, New York Comic-Con and cat-sitting for friends who just got married. Uh, Go check out his stuff, uh, his social media at Keith Foster Kid um, and his art account on uh, Instagram at StickyNoteAesthetic. Uh, Julia, thank you again for coming on this podcast. This has been a lot of fun. It's great to pick your brain finally. Um, and uh, yeah, I, ju- I hope that everyone goes out, checks out what you do. And also I look forward to seeing uh, the short film when it comes out. It, do you have any information on that as far as like, will there be like Vimeo links or anything like that? Uh, it will be private screenings only. I'm still figuring that out. The contract is strict, but we'll see what happens. Uh, I know what you need. Keep your eyes peeled be on my Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, everything. I'll talk about it when it's coming out. And thank you so much for having me. Uh, long days and pleasant nights, my friend. You as well. <laughs>